welcome to the Mother Love Podcast. This is Claire Larson, your host, and this project was made possible because of the support of Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies, the Montana Coalition. Mother Love was created to promote healing, connection, and shared wisdom through stories. Like any given day spent parenting, each episode brings a balance of tears, laughter, wonder, and surrender. When it comes to parenting, no one should go it alone. On Mother Love, we see you, we hear you, we're in this together. Hi, Mother Love listeners. I'm here with Stephanie Hackman today. And Stephanie's joining us to share a really beautiful, difficult at times story that has led her to do some incredible work in the world today. So as always, I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk with you, Stephanie. And I think we'll just start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and to our audience um, and just tell a little bit about what your current life looks like today. Okay, great. Thanks, Claire. So I'm Stephanie, and I am a mother of six children at the moment because I was recently married, and my husband also brought four children to the table. So with my two living children and his four living children, we have a total of six children in our household now. So it's very busy between, you know, things, events for each child. And it seems like each of them go to a different school. And And then I know that you formally, you lived here in Montana, Mm -hmm. where I am. Mm -hmm. And it's way too cold today. It was one of those days where it like started off warmer than it, like it got colder throughout the day. And somehow I feel like that's so unfair. I'm always (laughs) like, wait, it's supposed to warm up during the day. But now you are not living in the cold. That's right. Maybe you can tell us about a little bit of the backstory, because I think it's a really fun part of your story Mm -hmm. of why, why are you in Texas now? Yeah. So at the end of last year, I reconnected with, well, I guess it was halfway through last year. I reconnected with my high school sweetheart. Well, we dated in junior high and high school and he had just recently got, well, he had gotten divorced four years ago and I had recently gotten divorced. And so we started talking for a while and kind of rekindled our affection toward one another. And then in August, we were married back in the small town of Rexburg, Idaho, where we had originally met when we were in junior high. And um, so we were married there. And then we came to Texas is where he has lived for the past several years. And so uh, Texas today was 70 degrees. So a little bit muggy, but (laughs) not freezing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that part of your story Mm -hmm. so much. And I love that you guys decided to get married in Rexford, Idaho. I just think that that's, I just love it. I just think that's so special. Yeah, it was, it was a beautiful rainy day, which I loved because I love the rain. And after we were married, um, the man who, uh, Um, was both of our mutual friends back when we were in junior high. His name's Johnny and he was there at the wedding. And then afterward we were walking to the cars and he's like, you know, I'm going to get in my, on the way home, I'm going to listen to that Alanis Morris set. It's like rain on your wedding day. (laughs) So that kind of became like my little love song to myself. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Nice. (laughs) Because it's pretty ironic. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. And then I do think it's important to mention, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but you're doing some really interesting um, work right now. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with your work life? Yeah. So I'm a professional counselor. I've been licensed in counseling, working for the past several years in Montana in private practice and doing agency work with kiddos in the school system. And then when I moved to Texas, I found out um, the standards in Texas are a bit more strict. And so I'm required to get an extra 250 direct hours. And so I am working as a school behavioral health clinical liaison. So I get to go into the schools and kind of advocate for the kiddos who are 
falling under the radar or who may not be able to make it into the agency to get um, intake done and some assessments done. So I'm able to kind of bridge that gap for the people who have troubles connecting. I'm still working on a stepping stone toward that process of being able to do um, what I love the most, which is working with postpartum mental health. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then I guess the next thing before we really dive into your own personal journey and story of becoming a mom, we, I, I just love to know, you know, when I asked you to come on the podcast and when you've had other opportunities to share your story, like what is it that really inspires you or motivates you to share your story with a larger audience? I would say there are two things. First is for Jonathan, because at the heart of every time that I share my story is so that I share his story um, so that he lives. Um, And the second piece is I always think of that nameless mother who's sitting in her room listening to the podcast or who gets invited to a storytelling storytelling event and sits in the back of the back of the rows and hears the story and it resonates with her that it's a catalyst for change and healing of her own. So yeah, totally. Yeah. And for me, it's a therapeutic process, obviously, because um, there is a lot of health and healing in narration and in all the, in, in cultures throughout time And in cultures throughout the world, storytelling is an integral part of healing and grieving. So for me, I, it's, it's something that I gain from it, but then I think of Jonathan and I think of the nameless mother or father. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I agree. And those are, that mean a lot of that is why I've been that mom who has heard a story and who has been kind of rescued by shared experience. So Mm -hmm. it's, that's also what, why I get out of bed every day and why I feel so honored to do this work. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and, and talk about a little bit about your journey, which is there are so many layers and so many kind of factors that come in when we talk about your journey of becoming a mom. So I know it's kind of hard to say like, go ahead and just tell this story. But every, every mom I think knows there there's like a point in time and a, and a, a place in your life where you really feel like that your journey started. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let you decide that I'm not going to tell you where to begin telling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just if you could kind of tell us about the beginning of that journey. Mm-hmm. So my journey begins with motherhood. There's a lot that happened before that was able to become a part of my journey, but that's where I like to start my journey because that's where my heart is. Um, And so um, as a new mother, I was, I had started trying, we had started trying in 2003, but I experienced some barriers in my conception. And so it did take four years for me to conceive. It's like three, just over three years for me to conceive and about four years before we had our first son, Benjamin. And that was in 2007. And so I had gone through a journey of grief in that piece because I grieved the inability to conceive. I grieved that beautiful piece that I felt like I was born to do, which was to be a mother, the most important job. And the only job I ever wanted um, was to be a mom. And so when I wasn't able to conceive for four years, I did go through a period of um, loneliness um, and just sadness. Um, and so grief, And then I was able to conceive and I was so happy being pregnant. I remember getting motion or, um, what, uh, morning sickness for the very first time in my life. And I was elated that I got, (laughs) that I got sick because, because I got sick, that meant that I was pregnant and it wasn't just an, an imaginary event. It wasn't an error in any kind of a test. I was actually pregnant. 
And then we had always kind of just thrown it out there that about two years down the road, like two years between kiddos right, would be the perfect age gap. And so without any difficulty, we got pregnant for our second time. And Jonathan is his name. And he was due um, in September of 2009. So just almost two years after my son was born. And the pregnancy again, was this beautiful piece. I was um, so excited to be pregnant. I felt so beautiful. Some things happened to me because my belly was so huge, so it would stick out. People were always convinced that I was carrying twins, but I would get it Mm -hmm. caught on like doors and (laughs) I I burned my belly one time trying to drain the water out of noodles, (laughs) spaghetti noodles. Oh my God. And there was a nice burn mark around uh, across the front. And when I went to the doctor, I lifted up my shirt and he just laughed immediately. And he's like, spaghetti. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's like a common. Yeah, I guess that is a shared experience. So he knew right away. Yeah, he knew right away how I had done it. And um, there was this one time I was in the grocery store in Walmart, I think it was. And you know how they have the 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 like carousel of bags on these hooks that stick out and the woman just like (laughs) whips it around when you're done to make sure you don't forget it right and it caught my belly button and no way (laughs) these things never uh never made me feel bad that my belly was huge it made me feel special like I felt this earthly connection and this this uh, unspoken club that I was a part of when this pregnant woman Mm -hmm. walks by me and like we glance at each other and like "Mm -hmm, girl I know (laughs) totally uh yeah so my pregnancy was uh, just beautiful And I had considered doing a VBAC, a vaginal birth after a cesarean, because I had a C-section with my first son, because my blood pressure spiked at the end, uh, the very end. And so they just did a a C-section. He came, my first son was nine pounds, two ounces, so a big boy. Mm -hmm. And so I had considered doing a VBAC, but I was too scared. (laughs) I was too scared that I didn't, I didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize anything. So we had scheduled a C-section for September 24th, 2009. Um, three days before that, we went in for our final ultrasound and we did do our ultrasound and the heart rate monitor and everything just to be sure everything was perfect. Um, his heart rate was perfect and you know, he came up fine on the ultrasound and everything's great. And so the morning of the C-section, I remember him kicking around and I remember turning to my husband at the time and saying, uh, he's really active this morning. And so I got ready for the hospital and we lived in the small town of Conrad, Montana, which is very tiny, about mm, less than 3000 people. And the hospital was a mile away from our house. And so we drove to the hospital and my, uh, I can't remember if I was recording or if my husband was recording. I think he was recording and taking video. And so I remember, you know, just talking about how excited we were as we were driving to the hospital and we came in through the hospital doors and the the mothering unit, the labor and delivery consisted of three rooms right around the er, the emergency area. So we walked into the emergency area room, uh, doorway, and then we were brought into one of the three labor and delivery rooms. And they hooked me up to the monitor, got me in my gown and got me hooked up to the monitor. And, and then they put the goop on the, yeah, uh, the the monitor piece, you know, the, the kind that looks like a belt that straps across yeah. the biggest part of your belly. And there's one of those just like a, a listening device on it. And so she put it on and she couldn't get it in the right spot. She was struggling with it. And so she, she tried for a good two or three, five minutes maybe. And then she's like, I got to go get a different one. This one's not working. So she left the room and then she came back in with a new one and she hooked it up. And again, she couldn't find the heartbeat. And so 
she she's like, you know, I'm going to go get the ultrasound to to bring it in. He's going to have so much easier time getting it because they've got a machine. So she leaves. And I remember it was a bit of time, maybe 10, 15 minutes. And he came in with the ultrasound machine. And in those 10 minutes between the time that she left and he came in was the first time I considered that something what if, just what if something yeah. were to go wrong? At the time, though, I didn't believe that something could go wrong. <laughs> like, not to me. Yeah. <laughs> it happens to right. other people. So not to yeah. me. So by the time he came in, I remember him getting hooked up. And I remember turning to him and asking him, you would tell me if something was wrong, right? Like you would tell me. And he didn't respond. He just giggled no. kind of nervously. Like, <laughs> yeah. remember, or that's what I remember. And so yeah. I, um, I remember thinking that's not a good sign because he didn't yeah. answer my question. Right. And so he hooked it up and he tried for about 15 minutes. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. And so he, he was new. He was newer, a newer ultrasound tech. He was, he just barely started the job recently. So I kind that, that was kind of a comfort to me just thinking, I'm sure that this is an ultrasound technician who doesn't quite know what he's doing yet. So I'm sure my doctor will be able to figure this out. And so straighten this out. Yeah. Right. And so, um, he, after about 15 minutes says, you know, I'm going to go get the doctor because I'm just having a hard time, but I'm sure he'll be able to figure this out. So he leaves to go get the doctor and someone who was in the room at the time, a family member turned to me and said, I just feel like I should tell you that fear is false evidence appearing real. And I don't, I, I think she meant that as a comfort. However, it did not comfort me in that moment. Um, I was terrified by the time the doctor came in and I remember my body was doing things that I, that I wasn't used to. Um, I was shaking uncontrollably and that I'd never experienced things like that before. And I remember telling my doctor, I can't stop shaking. And I don't know if, um, if I wanted him to like fix it or if like I was asking him if something was wrong with me, why I couldn't stop shaking. Like maybe I was going, you know, something was wrong with my body. But all he said was, I know. And in that second, I was like, of course you would be shaking. And so it was, it was a comfort. And so to be acknowledged mm, like that. mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. And so then he jumped, he sat on the edge of the bed and he put the monitor on my stomach. This time it was like one of the wands and he put the monitor on my stomach for about 30 seconds and he pressed it and he was a very exceptional doctor. He was great at what he did as a family practitioner. He was um, also trained as an anesthesiologist. He knew ultrasounds. He was an exceptional doctor. And about 30 seconds go by and I'm watching the little tiny, it's a little black and white screen, probably no bigger than uh, a one, a, like a cell phone, <laughs> like maybe a large cell yeah. phone, but just probably no bigger than that. But I remember seeing these like, like posts, these white posts and the doctor pointed at him with his finger. And he said, do you see these right here? And he's pointing at these posts, it's like light and dark, light and dark, black and white, black and white. And he said, they look like prison bars. And I said, yes. And he said, those are his ribs. And then he hovered over a little black dot right behind the ribs. And he said, and you see this right here? And I said, yes. And he said, that's his heart. And I said, and it's not beating. And he said, it is not. 
And that was the moment that I found out that my son had died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, like you said, like what an exceptional doctor to have the understanding that you at that moment, like you didn't need anyone to skirt around anything. You needed information and you needed someone to tell you the truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is something that is really rare in those situations because people, even if it's their job to care for their patient, people are so uncomfortable in those moments that they often don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. So they don't say anything. And that's what you had been experiencing up until that moment. Yes. And so I imagine that, that as hard as that was, it was also really important that he was so straight with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Can you share just more about what that was like after that moment. Yes. So after that moment, well, actually I remember that he explained the news to us and in the room, it was filled with some people that I knew, some people that I didn't know. There was the doctor and the ultrasound technician. There were two nurses. And then there were several students. I want to say three students. Maybe some were nurses. Some were student uh, physicians. Um, people I had never met before. And on on one side of the room. The other side of the room, there were two or three family members and two or three members of an oppressive religious organization that I was a part of during the time. And so I started crying immediately and I started going over the, the events of the past few days and recounting out loud, but we had just seen his heart, but nothing had come up, but he was alive this morning. And, And I remember that piece. And then the doctor, you know, he just was so caring and just, I'm going to let you have some time. And he left. And I do remember the first thing that I did was turn to my spouse at the time and say that I was sorry. So immediately guilt came in and rested and the guilt didn't leave for several years. Yeah. Um, Maybe the guilt hasn't quite left all the way yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that part of the party left the room and the doctor, before he left, he said that the danger of rupture is over. And so now we just need to decide if we want to do a C-section or do a vaginal birth because the danger of rupture was over, meaning that the risk of vaginal birth after C-section is due to the possibility of your a rupture happening and causing harm to the baby. And since right. there was no living baby, there was no risk. So, yeah. and everything within me wanted to do, uh, do a vaginal birth because in some way, in some magical way, I thought that what a beautiful way to bring my son into the world, to give him this last, last gift. Mm-hmm. And when he left, I knew that as a member of this oppressive religious organization, I wasn't able to make a decision like that on my own. And I needed to get permission from the leader. And so after the door shut, when the doctor left the room, I turned to the leader and I said, now we just have to decide if we will have a VBAC or continue with the C-section. And he said, you'll do a C-section. And so when the doctor came back in and he asked us what we had decided, I said I would do a C-section. And so immediately things went into motion. Yeah. Why do you Mm -hmm. think that he, like, why do you think that the leader made that call as opposed to the other? Mm -hmm. I think there's a few reasons. First of all, I think that this particular person 
has had an issue with power and so that he made the decisions in each of the members of this oppressive religious organization's lives. And then the other piece is because this particular leader was very focused on notoriety Mm. and having some kind of a quote-unquote miracle happen so that he would get recognition. And so what he said he believed was that the women of the organization would go into one of the other three labor and delivery rooms and begin praying. And then if we did a C-section, it's possible that the baby could come out alive. And then, then all of the world would see this miracle that happened. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And so his expectation was that this would bring him some recognition. Yeah. Did you, because you knew that that was his belief, did, was there a hope that resided in you that that could be a possibility? So I was part of this, this by definition, Robert J. Lifton is a, an expert on cults and mind control. And according to his definition of a cult, this organization meets the criteria of a cult. And so this is how I'll refer to it from now on is this cult. Um, This cult had specific belief systems set up. And the way that they enforced these beliefs onto people was to use coercion, fear, and kind of threatening. And so this was a tactic that was used to control me in that moment. So I was controlled by fear that if I didn't choose to go on with a C-section, then God couldn't do the miracle and it would be my fault that my son died and didn't be raised back to life. Um, if that makes sense. So It does, yeah. yeah. I was just wondering, I was just curious how you felt at that moment um, because it's such a hard reality to accept that I just... And I was curious, I guess, about your experience in that moment, whether out, whether you were able to hold on to hope that maybe that miracle could take place, or if you just, as a mother who had just seen her baby without the heartbeat, if you just innately knew that that wouldn't happen. So I think that if you were to ask any mother mm-hmm. who receives the news that her child is dead, that they are in disbelief for quite some time. So in that, in that time period, I was also in disbelief. And, and so if, if there were any way that I could turn back time and go back to the day before when he was still alive um, and say that I demand a C-section this day instead of this day, I I think there's a part of me that still has never even let go of that possibility. Yeah, I bet. So I would do anything to make him alive. Of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and think about how impressionable a person is when and vulnerable in that situation. So coercion is not difficult when someone is vulnerable coming out of that experience and what was available to you in terms of healing or even just trying to live with what had just happened, you were really limited in what you could use to get help Mm -hmm. for that. And you were really limited in what even you could understand was happening within you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So because I was a member of this cult, the idea of seeking outside counseling or help was very frowned upon. And because I 
wasn't able to get the help I needed, um, I did end up developing PTSD as a result. I had become pregnant again four months after that day. Four months afterward, without with no planning or trying, um, I was I became pregnant with my son Elijah, who is now twelve years old. Mm-hmm. And so, I was incredibly happy to be pregnant. And also still very, very sad. And so I think that battle internally between feeling this incredible emptiness, but then also this incredible joy, I think that Mm. battle was what led to increased levels of anxiety and what would be uh, postpartum stressor disorder and PTSD because, and I think that in PTSD, the best way to treat PTSD is immediate exposure to the stressor and immediate help. The the sooner you get help, the less likely you are to develop PTSD. Um, So the research shows. So when I got pregnant, with Elijah, I went to the same doctor, the same hospital, the same room, the same doctor, the same nurse. And so it did help me through my journey. However, I was terrified. I was so scared to be pregnant. The fear that I went through during that period of my life, I can't describe. It's the deepest, darkest place I've been in my life. And I would um, have panic attacks daily. So the issue was that the members of this cult believed that fear was a sin. And I was told that I would be, because I had fear in such a way that they, they, they would use biblical scripture as a method of control. One of the verses that they used was the fearful and the unbelieving will find themselves in the lake of fire, something with the angel and or with the devil and all of his demons. And it's something to that effect. I'm misquoting it. But people who are afraid and people who do not believe belong in the same place that the devil does, which is burning in hell. And um, I was so afraid and also doubting everything. And so I was not able to talk about the anxiety to people because it was actually a sin. And so my spouse at the time and I weren't able to talk about this because it was a hidden sin. And so I remember there were times where there was this one time where I was actually having a panic attack on our bed and I was shaking uncontrollably. And my spouse at the time thought that I was cold. So they went and got me a blanket and said, oh, you're cold. And, and I wasn't able to tell them, actually, I'm having a panic attack. And oh my gosh. Um, so it was a kind of a hidden secret. It was a, a secret and a shameful because I was ashamed that I wasn't able to be a model person in this cult who wouldn't let something like fear control them. So, man, that's so tough. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine. And I, I'm just so sorry that you went through that. That must have felt really lonely. Yes, absolutely. Very yeah. lonely. Um, there was nobody that I could tell what was actually going on. Yeah. And so there was a there was a time about three and a half years after Jonathan died that a person in the cult came up to me and told me that I had a spirit of grief on my shoulder that I had kind of contracted a spirit of grief and that it wasn't allowing me to get over the loss of my son and that I needed to get rid of that spirit and that um, something that I was doing was keeping it there. So gosh, just the amount of self blame, mm -hmm. like you said, must it just, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was pretty difficult, um, especially since it started 
you know, at the moment of finding out that right. Jonathan had died and, and then it was quite a long journey. So then in 2017, we, or 20, um, 2017 is when we did end up exiting the cult together. My husband at the time and my two sons and I, and what ultimately led to that decision was consistent stripping of of free will and the right to make choices on our own there if you can think of every area of a person's life every area of a person's life is controlled within that cult and what was happening is the method of control was anger threats and um, coercion and so sometimes these would come out in aggression and raising voices and yelling at, at, at me, at my spouse and I in front of our children. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I just remember thinking that this, this is not a way that I want to raise up my children and I can't continue to do this because yeah. it wasn't about me at that point. It was about my children. And so my children are 14 or 15 and 12 now, and they still remember that happening. Yeah. They remember um, people yelling at us. Mm -hmm. So it did affect them in a way. Of course it affected them. And then after we left the cult, it was kind of this period of reclaiming ourselves because everything that had happened during that time period was strategically done to strip away our identity and Mm -hmm. to mold us into the image of what that cult wanted to project. Um, And so Stephanie, the Stephanie that loved wishing on the first star she saw in the middle of the night or, um, you know, like picked up a dandelion and blew off the little <laughs> and made a wish or wished on like a four leaf clover. That Stephanie who believed in the magic of every day yeah. was squashed to the point where yeah. I, I had almost forgotten who I was. And yeah. so about a year after I left the cult, I decided that, um, the, that it was time for my journey to, for, for myself to reclaim myself in my journey. And so part of that was in connecting to myself and my body, because, um, the thing that had started presenting itself was a stress and it's acute effect on the physio physiology of the body. And so that's how the trauma um, kind of presented itself in within me. So for a long time, a long time in this cult, I ignored the warning signs that my body set off. So there were times where certain things would happen and, and you, and I would feel this like, um, kind of a, just a little, a little glimmer, like a warning sign, like, like that doesn't feel right. And I had been conditioned to ignore the warning signs so that eventually the warning signs were huge, but I had been so conditioned to ignore the tiniest ones that by the time they were huge, I was just ignoring them and they were life changing things that I had learned to ignore. And so that's what I started doing. And I had the help of this beautiful, (laughs) uh, feeling, wonderful person. I don't know if I can say her name on the podcast. Jamie, you're not the first guest to talk about Jamie and EC. We can say it. So Jamie and EC. So I I always thought that if I ever wrote my story um, as like an allegory, she would be like a moonbeam or (laughs) something something like magical and like glimmering and like a hope in the darkness. Right. And so Jamie, the moonbeam moonchild, Jamie. (laughs) I think that's how most people feel about Jamie. If you've met Jamie and ECU understand that Mm -hmm. she is a rare Mm -hmm. light in this world. Yes. 
that's just true. And yeah. I stumbled upon her and, mm-hmm. um, and I was able to work through my healing journey with her walking beside me. Mm-hmm. And the thing that uh, I would say the biggest Okay, I I can't categorize it, but one of the most (laughs) life-changing things that she helped me to do was to remember to love myself. So in every warning sign that came off in my body, it was this this opportunity to hear myself again and to love myself and to have compassion for myself. And in so doing, I was able to step past the 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 pain that had been caused and, um, you know, as if I were a flower that was like wilted, but not dead yet. And she was able to teach me how to nurture myself again and, um, come out of that pain and, um, experience with a story to tell. And, um, yeah, because not only were you taught to ignore conditioned to ignore, your intuition and your signals and your bodily sensations, but you were taught that, that having them was fundamentally wrong and like actually like really, really bad. Mm -hmm. So like, was there a point in time where it was like, felt really scary to do that work? And then as you went along, it got easier you know, was it really scary at first to like give yourself attention and compassion in that oh way? Gosh. Or did it just feel so good from the beginning? No, it was terrifying. It was yeah. so <laughs> scary. Um, yeah. And Jamie knew that. I, I know that she knew that as we were doing the work. And so I think she would address it in a way that celebrated the strength that I was demonstrating. So the tiniest of strengths were celebrated. And once that became normal, then my strength became bigger, right? And so then that strength was celebrated. So it was scary because it was a long time that I was part of that organization. 14 years was your family, was your extended family also a part of this cult or did you have a, so, a support system that existed outside of it? Yep. So my family was not part of the cult. The people that were part of this cult invited me to go and I had never met them prior to that. Um, but the interesting thing is the individual that would invite me would become very close to me in the future. And what I found out in years later was that there had been discussion about arranging an, a marriage for me, uh, a, a marriage for me before I came into the cult. And then a kind of a matchmaking situation leading up to my joining the cult. So mm-hmm. if you can imagine, I don't know if you have ever heard of any of the things that have gone on in Scientology, but there's been some kind of discussion about members of that organization kind of um, putting in line events that would lead to certain people coming together. So it's not an outright matchmaking situation, but it's they kind of like put this event here and this event and this Mm -hmm. event that would lead these two people together. And then what eventually ended up happening was that when my my ex-spouse and I had come together, these members of this cult had told us that they already knew long before we knew because God, quote unquote, had told them that we would be married a long time ago. And so just even wow. that I met my spouse in the way that I did was actually already arranged for me before I before I had set foot into the organization. Wow. That's so interesting and so deceptive. Yeah, it it really is deceptive. And um, ultimately, I think um, uh, my spouse and I, my ex-spouse and I divorced last year. And part of the part of the understanding we both came to is that after we left the cult, we both went on our own journeys to kind of 
rediscover who we were. I was 21 when I came into the cult. And so I had a pretty good understanding of who I was Mm -hmm. and, and what pieces of myself they had strategically kind of squashed out. However, my spouse was very young, um, pre-teen years. And so they had some, I I feel like they had a, a greater journey. I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to compare myself, but but they had to go back farther in themselves to rediscover who they were. Mm -hmm. So probably two thirds or more of their life was spent in the cult. Whereas just maybe like one third of mine. So, and so in their journey, they discovered some things about themselves And in my journey, I discovered some things about myself. And then we both had to face this idea that we were, in effect, living in a modern day arranged marriage. And so whose choice was it to come together? Were we still compatible? And did we see ourselves... Um, walking together on our journeys or had our paths kind of diverted into two um, individual paths. And what we ultimately found out is that they had diverted. And so in 2022, we did end up stepping into our own journeys and our paths separated then. And that's when I um, reconnected with my former Uh, sweetheart. And actually, Mm -hmm. when I had come into the cult, I had just stepped away from um, an engagement to my current husband. Really? Yes. So we had been engaged. Yeah. So we had been engaged. And um, actually, at the time, he was a member of a religious group where he (laughs) went on... um, I'll say like a mission. This is like the best. <laughs> this is the best unorthodox love story ever. Like I want to see the rom com, yeah. slash like drama, no. suspense thriller about your love story. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a rom com suspense thriller, but this would be the first. I heard that Hallmark is looking to switch up their like oh, storyline. Okay. So Maybe I'll pitch the idea to them. Yeah. So he was on this uh, religious trip that would last about two years. And while he was gone was when the cult came into um, and had done this arranging. And I ended up getting married. And by the time he came back from his trip, I was already married. Wow. And so he talks to me now about the period of his life after that, when he came home and realized that there was absolutely no way that we could be together, that he went through a low period in his life. And so, yeah, yeah, that was a big loss for him. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, Mm -hmm. you know, and yeah, we don't look at it with regret because we have six beautiful children. <laughs> from That's these right. two marriages, it just so happened that neither of our marriages were what would become what we are together. So yeah. it 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 kind of worked out for us in the end. Yeah, um, totally. Well, and you had said that the two of you spoke about you know no matter what had happened, had you ended up together like you are today or not. You knew each other at a time in life that is so like that just so shapes fundamentally who we are mm-hmm. as people mm-hmm. that you would always be a part of each other's stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are a lot of people who know that feeling of connection, whether it's a really beautiful friendship or whether it's, you know, you were when you grow with someone like that, there just isn't it just doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. It's a part of your story. Mm-hmm. You know, you find out who you are through these relationships Mm -hmm. when you are that age and that that's important. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's something that you got back in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. it's, that's why it's such a favorite part of your story. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when we reconnected, there was, um, there was just this, 
I can honestly say that part of our journey coming back together has helped me reconnect with who I was even further. Um, And so um, my journey has been so hard at times. (laughs) Um, Just coming away and remembering who I am and struggling through these struggling past this, um, these, you know, this thought stopping procedures that the, the cult had, um, kind of trained us to do and to like, trust my own voice, trust my own needs, trust my body knows me, um, trust the signals that it gives me on a day-to-day basis, trust my intuition again, and trust the connections that I have with people and with myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, what's so beautiful about that is like now that probably makes you a really wonderful partner and wife. It makes you a really, really beautiful, attuned mother. And it equips you to do this work with children and advocating for them in ways that would just totally go over other people's heads. Like you, it's, it's so, I don't know. It's, it's hard because we never want to like say, yay, I'm so glad I went through all that traumatic hard stuff. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it does turn into this skill set that is like super duper rare mm-hmm. and can be so effective and help so many other people mm-hmm. learn to love themselves in ways that, you know, are really, really powerful. So mm-hmm. I think that I think and, and when you work in, you know, you're ultimately, you are planning, I know, to specifically work with perinatal mental health and, and moms in this period. Mm-hmm. And just the, the amount of empathy and compassion and comfort that you have going to those hard spaces with people mm-hmm. is, again, like it's something that's really hard earned and hard won, mm-hmm. you know, and you, yes, you can learn that when you go to school. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a room with someone who's grieving, like if you've also been to the depths of grief, then you are their person, mm-hmm. you know? So I just think it's incredible. Yeah. I, I do think that it, it gives me kind of a superpower. I like to mm-hmm. think of it that way that it gives me the ability to empathize with them in a, in such a, such a place of strength um, yeah. to, to, to know what it is to grieve someone that you love, to know what it is to feel your freedoms being stripped away. So individuals who've experienced great loss in their life, individuals who've gone through domestic violence. Yeah, uh, I find that I can bring to the table something that just has like a true depth and meaning. So that transparency of this real lived experience. And I've always been open with my clients about some of the journey that I've gone through because for someone to know what it's like to grieve is, is such a comfort and a peace that, that just um, brings people together. So that that nameless person in the back of the room who hears my story, um, it might give her the strength to share her own story, to begin that healing yeah. process. And I believe that yeah. the healing process begins with sharing your story with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think counseling or, or storytelling, narrative therapy is really valuable because you are giving yourself your voice to share your experience after your voice has been taken away. Grief yeah. takes your voice, right? abuse, coercion, domestic violence, it takes your voice away. And so reclaiming that um, is one of the strongest things, strongest gifts I think a person can give themselves. Yeah, agreed. And when we're in the throes of any of those things, like you said, it's so hard to even to even believe that you, that there's a possibility of getting out of such an impossible situation or an impossible feeling. Mm -hmm. And so that's another thing with storytelling is like when we are able to witness someone who is on the other side of what we're like just completely in the middle of, it does offer hope that like, okay, this person was in this heart of a place as well. And now they've healed so much that they're healing other people. Mm -hmm. And like, 
that is, that's so hopeful, mm-hmm. it, you know, for, for people to know that, like, it's not like you're going to um, suddenly become like a polished product that mm-hmm. never went through anything hard. It's more that you'll be able to, through healing, you'll be able to develop, like you said, like a superpower Mm -hmm. that only belongs to those who like walk through the fire of this kind of process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And storytelling is one of the bravest ways to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. And the, you know, it's, it's not that I'm in the place now where my body doesn't give me warning signals or I don't have anxiety sometimes. Sometimes I do feel my body giving me those signals. It's kind of like if you think of it as a a little girl, like my little self, my young Stephanie, like tugging at my pant leg, like, are we okay? Like, are, are yeah. you all right? Is this okay? Like, are you sure we're going to be okay? And then you scooping up that little girl and you know, just like rubbing her back and telling her we're going to be okay. So my body does still come up to me and give me signals like, you know, that just catch in my throat, like, is this okay? And then I do still continue. But the thing that I don't do anymore is to ignore it. Yeah. And then one last thing Mm -hmm. before we wrap up is I'd love for you to talk about what, what writing has done for you. Mm -hmm. So writing for me is, has been the most therapeutic thing that I've done in my entire journey. So I was a writer before I became a mother, before I was a member of a cult, before I was divorced, before I was a woman in my (laughs) forties, I was a writer. (laughs) And now I am a divorced mother of a stillborn (laughs) child, ex-cult member, 41-year-old woman who is a writer. And so that that piece of me that was kind of put on hold for a 14-year period has reunited with herself. And so she is about telling her story in all the different ways that she can with, with different means and methods and bringing a voice to my experience. So I have done short pieces of work that I've had published and I'm currently working on longer memoir of my journey. So awesome. Yeah. Yes. And I actually, I continue my journey by reading other works of women who have gone through or, or individuals, sometimes men, sometimes women, sometimes in between of humans sharing their stories of what they've gone through in their lives. And one that we recently discussed, you and I, was the, is it Joan Didion? Is her name Joan? Joan Didion. Uh, and so I did read the the year of magical, the year thinking. Of magical thinking. And yeah. so you did I, in like one week. I <laughs> Actually, I read it and I listened to the audiobook after I read it so that I could really soak in the words that she right. uses. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. And so my work isn't published yet, but Joan Didion's is. So if anybody really wants to like step into the heart of storytelling as a method of grieving and therapeutic healing than Joan Didion's uh, The Year of Magical Thinking is a good piece to go to. It's astounding. It's uh-huh. astounding. And so yeah. some of the words that she said, um, sorry, uh, my printer's connected to, oh, to someone's okay. phone. So they decided now is a good time. So, okay. So <laughs> this is a mom podcast. Okay, so. great. Okay. So a kiddo yeah. has homework. I know that's what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the year of magical thinking, some of the words that she said in her book, I have written, And I found that incredible because Joan Didion went through her experience. It's such a different time in history than I did. Her experience was completely different than mine was. But the words that came out of her mouth, the experience that she, the feelings that she felt, I had written those things. One of the strongest things she said is that healing comes in waves. And I'm not going to lie. I thought I invented those words. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that's so beautiful because it's universal. It's such a universal piece. And so I, I, I am a lifelong learner. 
and yeah. reading her story, uh, it was just a reminder that I'm not alone. Yeah. This woman, I, she has yep. passed on now, but, and so I'll never meet her, but wow, what an experience to learn from. And yeah. I feel like we could have had a, a nice cup of coffee together and talked about our experience. Together. Yeah. Have you watched the documentary? Have you done all your Joan Didion homework? <laughs> so the documentary on Netflix about her life. I, if you haven't seen it yet, did you watch it? No, I didn't because I didn't want to watch it until I was done reading. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I then stepped into the blue book that she wrote. Blue Nights? Yeah, Blue Nights, which is the kind of a, a story about her daughter and her experience and grief through that. So so I'm not quite okay. done with that, but well, then when I'm going to watch well, that. When you're done with that, because the cool thing about that documentary is you will feel like you're having a cup of coffee with okay, her. Okay, great. Like I it's very that. intimate and it's, it's very well done. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. She, if, cool. so, you well, know, I'm glad that, yeah. The, the, the question that they ask, if you could have a cup of coffee with one person in history or with somebody in history, living or dead, who would it be? Mary Oliver is Me too. my person. Is it? <laughs> Mary Oliver is my I'm here. Yes. Joan Didion's like yeah. really close on that. List. Joan Didion yeah, is on my list now. Say. So yes, Mary yeah. Oliver. She her her writing helped me through the darkest part of my grief. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because she went through a lot mm-hmm. of her own darkness. And mm-hmm. I yeah, Mary Oliver definitely. Okay, so now I have to bring up one more since we're nerding out yes. on authors. But have you read anything by Matt Haig yet? No. So it's M-A-T-T-H-A-I-G, Matt Haig. And he's he's a novelist, but he also has written um, recently uh, a few books that are like the some of the most accurate accounts of depression or anxiety. Like the way that he writes about those things mm-hmm. is like you it just is so spot on. Mm-hmm. And I he's now he's one of my people that I also would like to have a cup of coffee mm-hmm. with. Um, so, okay. So yeah, I'll have to do some one. research. Um, the mother love podcast put on by, I think New York times maybe, but there's a, or it has to be one cause this is mother love. So it's probably called, is, is it called something slightly different? Modern love. <laughs> okay. I was like, wait a minute. Thank you for promoting the podcast on the podcast. <laughs> so there's the modern love podcast and they've done some video shorts like that and there was this one that i happened to stumble across where Anne hathaway portrayed this woman who had bipolar disorder and she hid that from everyone in her life but there was this piece where you know these are based on essays turned in by actual mm-hmm. people which is what I love the most about it, but there's this portrayal where she shows what it's like to um, kind of be helpless against depression when it sets in. And it's the most accurate depiction of depression I've ever seen before where it just comes on like a heavy weight and just like, kind of like sits you back down. And so um, I'd be really interested to see what Matt Higgs has to say about depression. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I have experienced yeah, depression his, postpartum, uh, not postpartum depression, yeah. but depression after word, yeah. but not postpartum depression, but just just mm-hmm. that feeling. Yeah. So. Yeah. His two books are called Reasons to Stay Alive and The Comfort Book. Those are mm-hmm. the two that are really about his journey with mental health and they're good. So anyway, (laughs) okay, well, I'm glad glad we got to just nerd out on writers and writing for a minute there. Yes, I am really grateful. You know, I, I don't know if you can share with listeners where they can find your writing that's been published, Mm -hmm. but I'm really grateful that you shared it with me and that I was able to read it. Um, It's really beautifully done. Okay. So is there a place that we can send people? So we'll have a link that I'll send you afterward and then they'll be able to access that. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate just you, the work you do, who you are Mm -hmm. and for coming on and sharing your story. Yes. And likewise, Claire, because you're providing an atmosphere where we can come and share. So thank you and the mother love podcast for inviting me on today. Yes. Thank you to our incredible editor and producer, Brooke Boone Miller for sharing her gifts with us. 
She's a mom and she gets it. And for that, we are so grateful. If you are seeking supportive parenting resources, please visit hmhb-lifts.org, an online guide meant to connect Montana families to services and programs throughout the state. It's okay not to be okay. Help is within reach and you don't have to go this alone. We promise. And if mother love speaks to you as much as we hope it does, please consider supporting this project by subscribing to the podcast, sharing it with your network, and or writing us a quick review. We are passionate about getting these stories out into the world, and we need you to help us spread the word. Oh, and just one more thing. We know a lot of moms who are really fired up about creating change in the maternal health care world. If you feel inspired to make a donation to this movement, please go to hmhb-mt.org slash donate or click the link in the show notes. Even just a $5 or $10 donation can make a huge difference. Imagine a future where mothers and caregivers feel supported, seen, and heard as they carry out the most important work of their lives.